Hello, welcome to We Are History. I almost forgot the name of the podcast then, John. That's what I normally do on Twitter, <laughs> Angela. It is, isn't it? Oh, God. It's Monday morning, John. That's my excuse and I'm sticking to it. Um, welcome. Uh, I'm Angela Barnes. And I'm John O'Farrell. And what are we talking about this week, John? Today we are talking about, well, Angela, I have to say we've done some dark subjects in our time. We've we done have. the Black Death. We've done, you know, massacres, wars, famines, pandemics. Mm. But this week we go even darker. And listeners may need to prepare themselves emotionally for this one because we're about to recall how in 1920, for 13 terrible years, the United States of America closed all the pubs. They did what, they, John? They banned alcohol in America <gasps> in the 20s. Prohibition is this week's subject. Oh, is that why I've got this 20s flapper outfit on that you asked me to wear, John? <laughs> That's just to um, get us in the mood. I thought it was weird, that text, but, you know, I'll I'm, do it. I'm whatever. dressed as Al Capone. I've got my, my submachine gun and we've uh, distilled our own moonshine in the little still we've set up at the back of the studio. So, <laughs> oh, so, yes. John, as if we've got a studio. I know. <laughs> so, yes, prohibition. The 18th mm. Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, which came into effect in January 1920. This banned the sale, production, transportation of all intoxicating liquors in the US and its territories. Wow. So that was, you couldn't have it at home, you couldn't buy it, you couldn't make it. You could have it at home if you'd bought you it before it the date. So the rich people completely filled up their cellars with whiskey and wine. Oh. And they sort of had enough to try and get them through for you know, the rest of their lives. But you know, if you were poor, the idea was you would never drink again. But it was aimed at the wow. poor. The whole thing was sort of very imbued with patronising notions of, uh, you know, telling the, the, the poorer people how to live their lives. Luckily, John, we've learned from that, haven't we? Yes. Well, I mean, it was, <laughs> it was, it was a great learning experience for uh, the United States. Mm. Basically, they went, right, you can't legally buy or import alcohol. So did everyone go, oh, no, we just won't ever have a drink then? Or did they go, can't get it legally, you say? Right. Can you direct me to the illegal alcohol then? And that's something they haven't really, or they certainly hadn't learned from that by the 80s when you had the war on drugs that used a similar sort of rhetoric of, you know, well, we'll just make it really zero tolerance. And it never works, does it? It's never worked, those policies. No, I remember the famous Onion front page, drugs win, war on drugs. <laughs> it went wrong very quickly with prohibition. People yeah. wanted a drink and people are determined to get off their faces in any culture by one means or another. And, mm. you know, in, in our society, it's an American society, it was mainly alcohol. But American alcoholism and American consumption of alcohol had been massive. Mm. US soldiers got a four ounce whiskey tot as their daily ration since 1842. How much is four ounces in today's money? It's about 100 mils for our younger listeners. Um, <laughs> but Americans back then were drinking like three times what they drink today. I, I think I read so the average American was drinking half a pint of whiskey a day. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? I mean, you know, I'd be dead if I drank half a pint of whiskey. Operating heavy machinery. <laughs> So, yeah, after the uh, civil, no, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. civil wars, wasn't it? Yeah, after the civil wars, immigration completely transformed America. The population rose from 35 million in 1865 to 105 million in 1920. And of course, you had immigration, large amounts of immigration from Ireland and Germany. And oh, what do Ireland oh. and Germany bring, John? Oh, beer. They bring beer, Angela. They bring beer drinkers, <laughs> right? And then you had lots of Southern Europeans. So you had your Italian immigrants who, what do they drink, John? The, the Elvino. Elvino. Yes. They drink wine. And there was a strong anti-immigration and conservative 
Street within the temperance movement. Yes, I think it's fair to say that um, uh, in those years, in the latter half of the 19th century, America was sort of transformed and many, many Mm. families had been rural, Protestant, white, had for generations been in the same sort of small villages and towns. Mm. Suddenly, the country was um, over, not overwhelmed, but in, in numerically overwhelmed by a new wave of immigration. And these people were in the cities. And the wet, yeah. wet v. dry debate, which was, you know, uh, alcohol versus abstention, was really also a battle between uh, the new America and the old America. The old America of Protestant family values and mm-hmm. the hardworking, hard-drinking factory workers who just arrived from Ireland, Germany, Italy, Greece or wherever. These yeah. people worked hard, liked to drink. And there was a huge, huge mushrooming of saloon bars in all the, in all the cities. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan, I could never say that. Clu, Ku Klux, the, the KKK um, <laughs> backed Prohibition, didn't they? Because they were obviously... It's tied in with their anti-immigration. Yes, because it was a very Protestant thing as well, uh, Prohibition. And the Catholics, Mm. the Irish and the Spanish, you know, and the Italians, they were like their communion wine, get pissed on that. Uh, So, yes, it was rural US versus urban New Americans. Really, the campaign to enact Prohibition, which we had a sort of 60-year run-up. Amazingly, it was down in large part to the people with the least political power, and that was the women. Bloody women, John. Sticking their noses in, busy bodies, like <laughs> nagging fingers. Was it the Women's Christian Temperance Union? What a what a was... rock and roll party that meeting was. <laughs> I do think though, we it wasn't just it wasn't a case of aren't women killjoys, was it? When you look when you dig a bit deeper, John. I mean these for a start, these women were active in their opposition to slavery as well. So they'd had yes. that sort of political fight. But also there was a huge link between the level of alcohol consumed and domestic violence and, you know, Absolutely. Um, yeah. maltreatment of, of women and children. So yes. it wasn't that they were killjoys. It was that they were trying to protect their life. Absolutely. I mean, I think we tend to paint the prohibitionists as austere Protestant Puritans. Uh, mm. In fact, the original Puritans who came to America had loads of booze with them and drink was very yeah, much part of Yeah, they took loads of, of beer, didn't they? They did. Yeah. But yeah, you have to remember that when alcohol was so much part and drunkenness was so much part of uh, American urban life, that that had terrible consequences for the women and children in those communities. And also the, the alcohol they drank was stronger, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it, it was stronger, it was know. cheap, it was got you drunk quickly. Mm. So yeah, it was about uh, not only uh, domestic violence, but also prostitution and the diseases that those men brought home from the brothels above the saloon bars. So mm. drink was the scourge of the lower classes. Most of these women were not lower classes themselves. They were campaigning on behalf of their sisters or in their, their, their societies. But they did believe that alcoholism and uh, drunkenness was the cause of so much poverty rather than perhaps a symptom. A self-medication for somebody who is yeah. in dire circumstances, which we know now. Quickest way out of Detroit, <laughs> bottle yeah. of whiskey. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the WCTU, they petitioned, they wrote letters, they held rallies. They had these little plays that they put on that toured the countries where mm-hmm. daddy would hit mummy, take her wages as a washwoman. The children would cry at their mother's skirt tails going... I was like Punch and Judy. <laughs> well, yeah, Sorry. actually, Punch and Judy's a bit like that, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. This place toured the countries and the children would say, I think they should put all saloon keepers in jail for 10 years. And, they, and then people at the you know, little small towns where these plays were put on would clap lightly and then all go to the pub. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but 
yeah, as I say, the um, the campaign came with a dash of anti-immigration sentiment. It was sort of religious, mm. moralistic, anti-immigrant, but it was feminist as well. The mm. temperance movement was a cocktail of all these things. Angela. Oh, John, take uh, the rest of the day off. Oh, I see very, what you've very done good. there. I mean, the movement had a little paper parasol and a sparkler. No, the metaphor's out of control. <laughs> Too <laughs> I've far, blown John. It, I've blown it. <laughs> <laughs> also, they probably weren't drinking cocktails. No, I think it's probably. A bit I mean, I'm too just Jesse. You're probably. Right. You're probably right. But these women, bless them, these Christian women would go to the saloons, which were pretty rough places, and they would mm. kneel and pray outside in their, you know, bustly skirts, uh, in all weathers. They would sing hymns. They would read from the Bible. You know, just what you go for a pint after work. And there's a load of 19th century women in big billowy skirts praying for your soul. <laughs> It's not what you want, is it's it? In, what's the film? With, oh, it's um, Guys and Dolls, isn't it? Where Sarah goes into the bars and is singing with the Salvation Army, mm. sort of a preaching temperance in bars. And then got, he gets her pissed and they fall in love. I thought, oh. I, I thought you were going to sing a bit there, Angela. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's never yeah. going to happen. Um, sometimes they would come into the pub and kneel and pray on the sawdusty, spitty, oh. saliva-ridden, urine-stained floor. Because some of the bars didn't have toilets, they'd have a trough under the bar so that you just... It's a brilliant idea. <laughs> so, <laughs> a bit more for the men than the women, I'd say, Angela. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't I'm know. not quite sure how I'd make I'm, use I'm, of that. I'm, I'm picturing you at the bar, though, and I'm struggling <laughs> to see you weeing into the urine trough. As you... I mean, I'd give it a bash, John. I'd give you a few drinks, maybe. <laughs> and these, these Christian women, you know, very respectable, would kneel down in the splash of urine and spit and sawdust and pray for these men's souls. And it, I can't imagine mm. it helped business. No, no. But to achieve their ends, these women realised that they needed political power. So mm. the cause of women's suffrage became very entwined with the work of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. The national president, Francis Willard, wrote pamphlets, articles, many books, including, Angela, Wheel yeah. Within a Wheel, How I Learned to Ride a Bicycle. Oh, this is relevant yeah. to our podcast episode. The on, Cycling um, Suffragettes. The Cycling Suffragettes. There we go. Look that up. Yeah, it's a good one. Women's suffrage, cycling, it's all intertwined, amazingly. It really is. And then there's another character... On the more militant wing of the women, Carrie Nation. Carrie Na I think Carrie Nation sounds brilliant. Tell us about her, Angela. I tell you what, right, it's been a grim week for women here in the UK, but I'd feel safe on the streets with Carrie Nation walking beside me. She was six foot tall, face of a prison warden, huge biceps. She went into saloon bars, John, armed with a hatchet. Oh dear, this does not ogre well. <laughs> And she would go in, smash the bottles behind the bar, the bar taps, the barrels, the beer, the mirrors, everything. She was quite a force of nature, was Carrie Nation. Mm. The book I read for this, Angela, was A Last yeah. Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition by Daniel Lockrent. And I'm just going to mm. quote a bit about Dear Carrie here. I ran behind the bar, she wrote, smashed the mirror and all the bottles under it, picked up the cash register, threw it down, then broke the faucets of the refrigerator, opened the door and cut the rubber tubes that conducted the beer, of course, it began to fly all over the house. I threw the slot machine, breaking it up, and I got from it a sharp piece of iron with which I opened the bungs of the beer kegs and opened the faucets of the barrels and then a beer flew in every direction and I was completely saturated. A policeman came in and very good-naturedly arrested me. <laughs> <laughs> what I love about that is what she's actually done is set the beer free, 
So it's yeah. a free for all, and everyone can get the beer. Everyone's drinking off. Everyone's <laughs> lying underneath it. Yeah, underneath these cut taps, like brilliant free beer. Yeah, she became a notorious symbol of the movement. She went on tour selling miniature hatchet souvenirs, and uh, the, some of the bars would have pictures of her as an anti-hero up on the wall, and it would say, "All, oh, wow. all nations welcome except Carrie." It's just Carrie oh, Nation. Oh, nice Carrie Nation. Yes, yeah. I like it. So the women have been getting along um, uh, swimmingly. Uh, literally, probably in the case of Carrie. Um, uh, and then what happens, Angela? Well, then, John, yeah. what happens is the Anti-Saloon League is founded in Ohio in 1892. And what that is, is a group of men that go, all right, ladies, we've got this now. You sit over there. We'll get you a baby sham. <laughs> uh, oh, sorry, I mean mineral water. And we'll take it from here. Yeah. Um, yeah. In that sort of way... That kind of almost British colonial way of taking over. Yes, I mean... <laughs> we'll take it from here, lads. Yeah, yeah. You so see, the... you can make a curry, do you? You sit down, we'll make a tikka masala. It's fine. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing about the WCTU is they had many other policies because they were campaigning for suffrage and they had a you know a policy on whether they are pro-Armenia or against the Turks or whatever. Uh, the mm. ASL, the Anti-Saloon League, which was um, you know dominated by men, they had just one policy and that was banning alcohol. Uh, mm. And then they would sort of concentrate on the uh, political margins uh, where they, their support could make a difference in elections. So, Because um, elections were often it was a dry candidate and a wet candidate, right? That was Quite often, yes. And they, they could yeah. mobilise thousands via the pulpit, via the churches. They could write mm. to 100 churches and you reach 20,000 voters. In fact, the only time they violated their single-issue policy is when they voted to support women's suffrage in 1916 because they thought that would aid us with our campaign uh, mm. to put forward prohibition. At this point, they weren't campaigning for a new clause in the American Constitution. No one had quite thought of that. They were just campaigning against alcohol generally. Many states were already dry. I should add that. that Kansas had been dry since uh, 1880, I think. And the various counties were dry. Uh, there were strict laws about you know, drinking on Sundays and things like that. So this was something that had been coming over decades. But in 1913, they had the idea of making it a new uh, amendment to the Constitution that, you know, right. banning all alcohol right across the country. And it became, wet v. dry became the big leave versus remain in America, you know, in the early 20th century. And that's a big deal then, isn't it? After the Civil War, a, yeah. an amendment changed the Constitution because it's not something then that would be state-controlled. It's something... Yes, it's federal. It's yeah. nation, nationwide. So that's a, yeah, That's a big deal to them then, right? Yeah. While the temperance movement was growing, so were the number of saloons. They tripled from 100,000 in 1870 to 300,000 in 1900. When they asked Carrie Nation why she hadn't visited Cincinnati, she said she would have dropped off with exhaustion before she'd gone one block because there were so many bars <laughs> that she, she would have had to smash up. Tiring smashing up bars, John. It is. It's hard know. work. It's hard work. We've all done it. We've all gone in there. We've all been there. <laughs> so the established Americans of many generations saw the whole country changing, a huge growth in drunkenness as they saw it, and there was this anti-immigration feeling. Plus in the South, they whipped up fear of the black man drunk on whiskey, um, which the KKK, of course, um, you know, did their best to sort of exaggerate. Rapidly, yeah. anti-drink legislation spread across state by state. So before it was in the Constitution, many states had banned the sale of alcohol. Right. So there was this resistance to a national ban. Yes. After the Civil War, because the feeling was you should let each state decide for itself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But then, of course, the idea of, you know, the government deciding things, that shifted a bit when America joined the First World War in 1917. Mm. The idea of the government directing state policy was more normalised. In New York, they had this novel approach. They tried to solve the problem of saloons 
by limiting the sale of alcohol to hotels where the rich would obviously frequent. So they, right. they brought in a rule that you have to have 10 bedrooms if you're going to sell alcohol. So saloons went to the upstairs room, put on lots of little partitions, put in <laughs> lots of little beds. And they thought, oh, what can we do? Oh. What can we do with all these little beds just above the pub where all the drunken men are? <laughs> oh, I know. Oh, God. <laughs> Instant brothel. Brilliant. You've got a 10-bed brothel, you can serve alcohol. Exactly, that's exactly what happened. So obviously a curtailment of the selling of alcohol is going to affect the breweries, right? Mm. So they had to fight against this creeping prohibition yeah. across the country. So they would buy newspapers and place adverts. Yeah. There's one ad featured a mother cradling her baby while gripping a brimming beer stein in the other, saying, lager gives health and strength to mother and child. Sounds like my childhood. <laughs> <It does. laughs> Well, if you go back and listen to our history of beer episode, yes, um, you'll see that you know giving beer to children was perfectly fine. Yes, um, in fact, they did it in hospitals. But of course, brewers were predominantly German, right? At that yes. time, it was Germans that brewed beer. Yeah, and all their and names were German. Yeah, all their na- all the beer names were German. So yeah. when World War One comes along, suddenly. Germany's the enemy. Yes. So that puts the breweries on the defensive somewhat. The playing of Beethoven was banned in Boston. Can you imagine? Right, yeah. So people with um, German ancestry or anything, like German immigrants were suddenly persona non grata, right? And they had to change their names. And they changed the names of the beer. The breweries started changing their beer names to probably things like Good Old Boy or whatever. Yeah, Eagle and Bald Eagle and stuff. I mean, um, some of them didn't, foolishly. And then there was one prominent German family which uh, owned the breweries. And they'd had investments in Germany before the war which now turned out to be technically german war bonds so they were told right. that this beer company is funding the enemy killing our boys wow that's gonna put you off your point isn't it? it is it's gonna say i'm not drinking that anymore emotions run high during wartime the other thing that's mm. probably worth mentioning is that you know in this battle between rural america and the new immigrant urban america the voter rolls were well out of date so the people with more power uh, were in the old small towns who were represented mm. by more congressmen than places like Detroit and Chicago. Which cities were, with yeah. lots of workers and yeah. immigrants. And, they, yeah. their, their votes were worth a fraction of what the, the rural seats were worth. Mm. So all the way through the First World War, this was coming. And in December 1917, it was passed by a sufficient two-thirds majority in the House, the idea of a, an amendment to the Constitution. And then it was uh, ratified. It has to be ratified by two-thirds of the states, 36 mm. of the 48 that were back then. Wow. And only two, two states never ratified it, which was Connecticut and Rhode Island. Oh, wow. So everyone had a year's notice. I mean, by the time it didn't get passed through until 1919, they had a year's notice for the rich to pack their cellars with whiskey <gasps> and wine. And this is exactly what happened. It's a bit like we did, John, when lockdown, the last lockdown was announced. It's like, quick, buy all the beer. Yeah, well, I um, mean... Um, then we drank it in a week, but yeah, it's fine. The government decided that, you know, we're closing bookshops, we're closing libraries, uh, off licenses. They are still key industries that must be allowed <laughs> to stay open. <laughs> but, you know, for all of us who have got a year, really, without going to the pub, uh, mm. imagine imagine if it was forever and you couldn't have a drink, you weren't allowed to buy a drink anywhere. Yeah. This is what was coming over the horizon for the ordinary American on January the 19th, 1920. Alcohol became illegal in the United States. You couldn't buy it. You couldn't make it. You couldn't import it. You couldn't transport it. And so America thought they'd solve the problem of alcoholism and drunkenness and low production. They thought they'd sold all this in one fell swoop. But did it turn out like that, Angela? Did it turn out that way? Well... We shall see, won't we, John? I think we should take a little break. A little break um, here, get ourselves a drink. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm going to pray for your soul to be saved from the refreshment of Satan. I see this busy body of women coming in and stopping <laughs> the men having their pint. It's always the same. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome back to part two of We Are History. We are discussing Prohibition America. Yeah, I got pissed in the break, John. I, well, I did see you swigging that moonshine. Do you remember <laughs> Do you remember illegal drinking, Angela, where before oh. you were 18? Oh. oh, trying to get served in the pub. Was it easier for women or was that just a myth when we were It two? depended on the barman. Yeah. <laughs> really? I mean, I remember we used to go out sort of, Wearing, uh, I never, I never did the sort of short skirts and good, I always good. wanted a coat on. I was, right. you know, I, I was quite a sensible underage you, you drinker. Pre- you pretended to be Ina Sharples or something. Yeah, yeah. basically. <laughs> I just put some rollers in my hair and they served me. It was fine. I mean, I could only have a port and lemon, but you yeah, know. Yeah, that's it. It's your girl. Yeah. But um, no, I just remember we had one mate who was, looked slightly older than the rest of us. So it's sort of push him to the front with his bum fluff moustache. Pint a bit, please. Pint a bit, please. Pint a bit, please. And then you'd sit behind the pillar in the pub so you're out of sight, you know. And, uh, and you'd learn in your town which pub served you, didn't you? It's oh, like, yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah, I remember a... the, the pub in our town was called the Tutton Shive that we used to go to. And when I was in the sort of probably the lower six, so I would have yeah. been about 16. And we used to go in there at lunchtime. And uh, <laughs> I remember once sitting there at lunchtime with my friend drinking a pint of cider. And then we'd go, go <laughs> drink back. a pint of cider in the pub. And then you'd see a teacher walk past. You'd have to duck. <laughs> and then um, I remember drinking a pint of cider. And then we'd go. It was right next to the shopping centre. So then we'd go into the shopping centre and go into Boots and spray ourselves with perfume so we didn't smell of cider. <laughs> classy times. Such classy times. <laughs> um, oh. Actually, talk, I mean, we're going to be talking about uh, moonshine uh, in the second mm. half. And I, as a student, actually made moonshine. I actually set up a still in my kitchen, converted my home brew into whiskey with a pressure cooker and a condenser. And But it's all done. I bought this book from the secondhand bookshop called The Moonshiner's Manual. And, uh, <laughs> and it, was, it was written like this. It said, hold on there, partner. You's only making skunk juice. And... Um, <laughs> And I made this clear whiskey. And it's probably, I mean, with a special thing that, you know, you take off the sort of zinc and all the dangerous bits. Mm. Probably mad and incredibly dangerous. And I do not recommend you do this at home. But it was pretty mm. potent and disgusting stuff. And it did get you drunk. But really, oh, really, I don't recommend it. But I've done it once I think anyway. a lot of people don't realise the colour in whiskey comes from the barrels. Yeah, exactly. Right? This was completely clear. Um, this was like, sort of yeah, like industrial so... alcohol, you know. Oh, did it taste? Did you, I suppose you just mix it with things that taste nice. It just made your mouth go. Whoa. It was like you know, it was like Puccino, or you know, schnapps or something yeah. like that. So anyway, January nineteenth, nineteen twenty, massive uh, day. Many welcomed the day. There were prayers and hymns, and they thought they'd banish this evil from the American soil. And they, they were an experiment in a new way of uh, society. The act that sort of underpinned the uh, 18th Amendment to the American Constitution was the Volstead Act, drawn up by, you know, Mr. Volstead. Mr. Volstead. And it made exceptions for communion wine, which didn't get stolen from the church at all. No, uh, <laughs> but I was just going to say, I can't see there being any problem with that. Rabbis were allowed to have sacramental wine. Huge, right. huge increase in the number of rabbis. <laughs> I'm a rabbi and so is my wife. <laughs> it, is. it was. It was a, a lot of them with Irish names, interestingly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's Omani, the rabbi. 
<laughs> how long you been a how long you been a rabbi there, Pat? <laughs> um, this is true, you know. Yeah. Lots and lots of medicinal alcohol was permitted, and lots of it was stolen from labs. So there's a lot of industrial alcohol was obviously used in industrial processes. Yes, wasn't yes. Weirdly, the act allowed for uh, cider to be continued to be made on farms for home consumption, which didn't well, seem to spread out as a there wasn't a massive cider craze like England well, in the noughties. Cider in America, cider is non-alcoholic, isn't it? If you ask for a cider, is that true? It's not. I think so. I'm oh. pretty sure that. Oh, well, that they're allowed to make ask... alcoholic cider anyway, in their on their, on yeah. their but, but in farms. But I don't think that didn't turn into a massive industry in the way that uh, uh, whiskey and wine yeah. and all these other things. I don't did. think they really. Yeah, it's here we are. Apple cider is the name used in the United States and Canada for an unfiltered, unsweetened, non-alcoholic beverage. Wow, yeah. missing a trick apples, there. Yeah. Yeah. Aren't they just? They are. I mean, I can't drink cider. It still makes me sick. Oh, no, because you have memories of sixth form. And... Oh, we used to have um, Biddenden cider, a village in Kent called Biddenden, and used to get it in, like, in tubs. Yeah. And it, it like, looked like dishwater. Yeah. Or I can't even smell it. Oh, yeah. I went now. to university down in Devon, so that we used to get these, oh, God, ha- yeah. these half gallons of this cloudy stuff for 30p from the newsagent. It was like... Oh. <laughs> Oh, God. It did the business. It's where you're <laughs> Doctors made $40 million from medicinal prescriptions of whiskey. They were like issuing prescriptions for whiskey, like, at, you know, right. huge rate. Just scribbling them out and you could you could get it if you needed it for your inability to sleep or your headaches. That would or... make my fella so happy <laughs> if he could get prescriptions. He's a real whiskey nut. Like ah, a... I see. Okay. Well, you, I mean, we're on a Zoom now. If I do that, oh, yeah. John, you can see all the whiskey lined up. What a beautiful a big... sight. Yeah, he'd love to get it on prescription. But so uh, what they all, everyone did in America is start making it. So within a week, mm. small portable stills went on sale and this massive bootlegging and brewing and distilling operations sprang up immediately. There were ways around this stuff. So you say these stills went on sale and I suppose that wasn't against the law, right? To sell the no, so the equipment to produce, to s- yeah. Sell a condenser. Um, I mean, I, every home should have a Leapspeaks condenser. I mean, who hasn't, who hasn't got? <laughs> That's exactly. It's next to my Revel sandwich maker. <laughs> I've got my condenser. Uh, Now, grape juice was legal, John. Yes. Now, what happens if you leave grape juice for about 60 days, um, it'll ferment in the bottle. Oh, no. Yeah, I know. (laughs) And you end up accidentally, John. Yes. With 12% content wine. Oh, I hope they they warn people about this. They did. They put warnings on the on the label, right. which would say that you know, caution. If you take the following steps, you will be making illegal alcohol. So definitely, do not follow this carefully illustrated guide for what not to do, John. Brilliant. I mean, millions of people were doing this. They're going putting it in their you know, putting this grape juice in their cupboards, uh, sort of where the heater was, in a warm, dry place, and uh, they suddenly had homemade wine. It probably was pretty rough wine, is all I can think. Oh God, yeah. Can you imagine if it was that easy to make yeah. wine, John? We'd all be doing it and we would yeah um in the cities they called it bathtub gin the stuff that was distilled oh. at home moonshine in the south but then no. to stop people drinking industrial alcohol the government ordered mm. it to be poisoned which was a yeah. nice nice move thanks guys yeah i read somewhere that they ordered it initially they ordered it to be poisoned with poison that you could smell and taste right. so people would know and then eventually that sort of move that they ordered it to be poisoned with tasteless nice 
what sort of get and thousands of people died yeah, by having alcohol cut with industrial alcohol that was poisoned. Yeah, they, they said that, I mean protect. bootleggers apparently employed chemists to renature the alcohol, but it didn't always work. So mm. they reckon like up to ten thousand people were poisoned basically by the government during that decade. Wow. Or so. When we think of prohibition, we think of speakeasies and gangsters. Yes, yeah, Fat Sam, Bugsy Malone. Bugsy Malone. Yeah, so speakeasies <laughs> sprung up. These these were secret bars that sold alcohol uh, that you spoke of very quietly in public. Hence, mm. speakeasy. That's where they get the name from. And they were so profitable that if they got raided and prosecuted, they just factored that into their business plan, paid the fine and moved on. Yeah, uh, so fines were just like business rates. Really, yeah, I they suppose. were. It was like, just like <laughs> a cost. Now, before Prohibition, women didn't go into bars except to pray next to the, the, the urinal and mm. whatever. Or be upstairs in the Or bottle, be upstairs. Presumably. Yes, I thought that. Weirdly, speakeasies saw women starting to drink in public and it became a thing that you'd go as a couple to the illegal drinking den. You might go from uh, downtown Manhattan up to Harlem where the Cotton Club was playing uh, groovy music. And uh, they go, this is, this is weird. So I mean, they became more racially mixed and the people were sort of the other side of the law. And we're less mm. strict about separation of the sexes or the races. So it became a sort if of... If you're breaking one law, you might as exactly. well break a other handful convent- of them, eh? Yeah, break other conventions as well. Obviously, an outcome of this, if you can't produce alcohol legally, yeah. what do you do? You produce it illegally. It's the same um, as the drugs problem, isn't it? That, yeah. And the courts become bogged down with jury trials of people who never would normally have broken the law. Yeah. And so not only is alcohol being made illegally, being distributed illegally, yeah. the government's getting no tax revenues from it anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Huge drop off in tax revenues from booze. Incredibly, only a 30% drop in alcohol consumption, they reckon. They thought it would yes, be 100 Is it worth it? Yeah. yeah. Basically, it was a huge lesson in the limits of power of the state to curtail our behaviour. People yeah. wanted to drink and they were going to carry on doing it whether you know it was illegal or not because they didn't really think it was a fair law. Yeah. So one other thing, you think about Al Capone and organised crime mm. and the untouchables and Elliot Ness. We know there was organised crime before prohibition, but because booze had to be distributed, criminals had to have a network across the country. Mm. So crime did become much more uh, on the basis of a national infrastructure than ever before. And so there was a sort of mafia network, a gangster network across the whole of the United States. Yeah. I mean, I read something quite interesting. You'd have these sort of, the the people producing it. So it might be produced on farms often or in small kitchen stills in the cities. But the people producing it wouldn't then transport it. You then had to employ people to drive yeah, uh, you know, to get its places because if you were producing it and you transported it, if you got caught, you'd lose your business, right? You'd lose your yeah. farm, you'd lose yeah. your house or whatever. Whereas if you were just driving it, you weren't producing it, you might lose your car, yeah, but you wouldn't lose the rest of your livelihood. You yes, know? yes. So, so it did involve having loads more people involved in <laughs> in the infrastructure. Yeah. And it's spreading organised crime right across places where it might not have spread. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's actually statistics on this. During the prohibition years of 20 and 21, number of crimes increased 24%. Theft and wow. burglaries increased by 9%. Homicides by 12.7%. Assaults and battery rose by 13%, even though everyone was supposed to be sober. Um, mm. And police department costs rose by 11.5%. You know, that was largely the result of black market violence and the diversion mm. of law enforcement Gangs resources and- elsewhere. Uh, yeah. Al Capone, he's the most famous um, uh, gangster with his 
Tommy Gunn, they called it the Chicago typewriter. Yeah. His brother was actually um, a prohibition agent. He was one of the 4,000 people employed oh, by really? the federal government to catch the bootleggers. Was he a double agent, maybe? Was he? Well, was he, it just good to have a man on the inside? I think he was probably corrupt. They were all corrupt. I mean, yeah. uh, pretty well, pretty well. All I'm saying, well, that's not fair. But there, were, there was a huge corruption. There was a very lowly paid job. But there was a huge demand. For this very low-paid job. I wonder why. Mm. <laughs> why? Uh, is their job, John, confiscating alcohol? Mm. Or taking bribes not to confiscate alcohol. alcohol so these, yeah. How's your job as a federal prohibition agent come out? Does, it, does that white fur coat part of the deal? And that, yeah. Do you normally have a Rolls Royce with that? But, yeah, there was so much money to be made. And it was a boom time mm. for anyone who was in the business of moving alcohol, stopping people moving alcohol. The police were taking bribes. And there was a significant rise in corruption that sort of infected the whole body politic. There was a slight drop. I mean, overall, there was a drop in alcohol consumption in America. You can yeah. measure the deaths from cirrhosis of the liver. Presumably as well, there would have been some places, because America has some remote places where yeah. they just couldn't get it. I oh, suppose. yeah, yeah. There would have been places where people observed it. But mm. those people were probably dry beforehand, if you know what I mean. So rural Protestant America tried to impose its values on places like you know, urban Boston with the Irish Catholics or, you know, mm. um, Little Italy in Manhattan. And they were not happy about no. it. People didn't agree with the law and so they just didn't obey it. They had um, a huge industry of uh, booze coming in from Canada being smuggled over mm. the border. The Detroit River, which forms part of the border uh, between the United States and Canada, was buzzing with boats going back and forth. And um, mm. billions of dollars were made there. Canadian whiskey was a big yeah, thing, wasn't yeah. it? A little role there for Newfoundland in the uh, in the export. And Good old there, Newfoundland. You, you'd always like Who weren't Canadian then, of course. No, it wasn't. So when Canada no. uh, sort of changed their policy about uh, agreeing to pay America some of the money, people started to go via Newfoundland because it was a yeah. it was a British colony. Did you read about, I'm not sure if it's in your notes, John, if it is, Tommy Sharp. Yeah. The rum row. Yeah. So ships, foreign ships coming in yes. would have to, three miles off the coast of America, would have to lock up all their booze. So yes. um, American ships weren't allowed to carry booze at all. Yes. So it also affected the tourist industry because if you were going abroad as an American, yeah. you'd book on a foreign yeah. liner because then you could have a drink. Yeah, it killed the and American they tried ships, to, yeah. Yeah, American ships would do things like they put in cinemas and put, to try and entice people to come on their ships because they can never drink. It's not doing it for me, Angela. It's not doing it's not, it for is me. It? It's <laughs> not. So from Canada, boats would come filled with booze. Yeah. And basically anchor three miles yeah. off coast. They put a big sheet with their price lists on everything. It was basically yeah. uh, supermarkets moored offshore. And all these little boats would come buzzing out and yeah. say, what do you and fancy today, madam? We'd like a little taste of this one and, you know, you can go shopping. <laughs> and, and of course, the East Coast of America is just full of little bays and things. Yeah. So it's just really easy. for If you had a little boat, yeah. you go up to one of the big ships, yeah. buy all your booze off the big ship and then just go sail into a little bay. There was actually a bit of a diplomatic incident uh, on the sort of seafront because the Americans said British ships must not have any booze on board when they come into American ports. They said it's, you know, you're not allowed into our ports if you've got any booze on board. The British ships were like, well, come on, guys. We would, what do you want us to do? Anchor just offshore, knock it all back. And then come in. So they're all coming in business. So for a while, British ships were tipping any booze they had left down the sink and overboard. Uh, and then they said, sod this. And it got back to the government. Yeah. And the British government was so offended they said, American ships, it is compulsory for them to have alcohol on board when they come into British ports. That was their retaliation. 
And then, Amazing. Then they went, hang on, this is not going to work. So what they said, okay, well, we'll put it under lock and key. So three miles out, they had to put the booze under lock and key whilst they were in American mm. ports. Their way of dealing with Rum Row, I read, was to extend it to 12 miles off yes. the coast. Yes. But of course, people were like, well, that's only an extra however many miles in my little boat. I'll just yeah. do the extra bit. Like, yeah. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's fine. And uh, not only was Canada a huge source of uh, Newfoundland and Saint-Pierre, but down the Bahamas, the British Bahamas, mm. was a huge trading post. And Nassau, which we touched on in last week's podcast with the pirates, mm. that just got rich basically off this trade. It's so close to Florida, they they, yeah. they could afford to dredge the harbor in Nassau and all the all the infrastructure that you see in the Bahamas today. That was all built with prohibition money, and UK whis- whiskey was distributed from. And there. from the Caribbean into Florida again. Florida's got like I think it's the the state with the longest coastline. Probably. Oh, And yeah. so there's plenty of points to bring booze in unnoticed. Well, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, not... America is a, is a huge wilderness, you know, really. I mean, yeah. now we imagine it's this, you know, 250 million people, but or 320, whatever it is. But back then, mm. there were more people in um, New York City than there were in the whole of California. You know, it's a very empty place. So to take booze up the coast from Mexico to California was easy to do without being caught, especially with the underfunded um, federal agents who are struggling to uh, to stop it. In fact, doing doing nothing to stop it anyway. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So after a while, the northeastern states who'd had this thing forced upon them, they just began to ignore it. Um, yeah. And New York just declined to enforce the Volstead Act. They said, "Let the federal agents do it. We're not having our state policemen." wasting their time on this. Massachusetts and Maryland did the same. Before prohibition, states had to decide whether they would be wet or dry. Now they were basically deciding whether or not they would obey the law. Right. On a state level. Yeah. H.L. Mencken, the great writer, said it wasn't true that a stranger could just walk off the street into a bar. He said you would have to be introduced by a judge or a policeman or some other reputable person. So that was... That was, that was the state of the uh, respect for the law at the time. They had a thing called a Prohibition Commissioner. He estimated that in 1919, the year before the Volstead Act became law, the average drinking American spent $17 a year on alcoholic beverages. By 1930, because enforcement diminished the supply, spending had increased to $35 a year. And that's not inflation, is it? There was no inflation. No, very in little that. inflation at this point. So, because of know, the depression, yeah. Basically, the result was that a legal alcohol beverage industry was making an average of $3 billion a year in untaxed income. So the posh people were having to pay more income tax to make up for it. There was more corporation tax. The reality that prohibition was a bad idea became apparent very quickly and it Mm. grew increasingly unpopular. Then, Angela, 1929, what happens? Great crash, John, massive unemployment. Oh, no. Poverty. Yeah, it's pretty bad times, John. Bad Uh, times. It's almost, John, as if the economy and the system created poverty uh, and not poor people getting pissed. Oh, yeah. You, that's a that's a thank you for that well, education on economics. Yeah. I've learned something there. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, with that collapse, you know, there was even less tax coming in, uh, yep. with their businesses all going bankrupt. No tax for the black market of licit booze, and um, the sort of economic emergency played a big part in the shift of opinion. So, what did the government do? Mm. They doubled down. They tried to make it stricter. They brought in new laws, prison sentences, because the laws were working so well, yeah. John. Just make more of them. There were one or two examples of sort of like a. Um, very unfair imprisonments, which got a lot of publicity. Mm. The Hearst newspapers, uh, you know, Randolph Hearst, all his papers switched their position and started to do quite uh, intense propaganda for repeal. At the same time, there was a reapportionment of votes. So the cities started to get fairer representation. Yes, they in... finally got around to sort of say, we've got to redraw these boundaries. And the fact mm. that there's a sort of million people in Detroit, maybe they should have more than one congressman like the 
the town out in the yeah. countryside. The president, Herbert Hoover, he was heckled by veterans who are chanting, we want beer, we want beer. And if we know Americans love one thing, it's their veterans. They do love their vets. And uh, mm. there, were, there were demonstrations of people holding placards saying, we want beer, which is a demonstration I could get behind, I think. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so in 1932, Frederick Delano Roosevelt stood for the Democrats, promising an end to prohibition. Now, the Republicans had been mm. in power all this time. Roosevelt himself had had his cellars packed out a dozen years earlier. It's probably running out a bit by now. Maybe that's what made him. <laughs> Though his wife was dry, wasn't she? She was, Eleanor Roosevelt, yeah. Mm. Yeah, she yeah. was very, very... Um, uh, I think they had a weird old relationship, those two, anyway. I don't think they spent a lot yeah. of time together. But to get prohibition repealed, it's a massive deal. You talk about changing the Constitution. But, John, you can't change the Constitution. Well, I know. That's what they say. It shows you you can. You still need a two-thirds majority in the Senate. You still need to get uh, two-thirds of the states to ratify it. But the 21st Amendment was brought in and it repealed the 18th. They did manage to get 36 states to repeal it. Mississippi held out and wouldn't. Mississippi actually stayed Mm. dry until 1966, legally. Really? That's incredible, isn't it? Wow. Do you know what happened after repeal was brought through? It made it harder to get a drink in America. Oh, God. Because I suppose there weren't bars and things, were there? The no. illegal operations are shut down. Yeah, now... It's, Where are you getting your booze from? I mean, the bars were starting to spring up, but they had hours, they had laws, they had ID requirements. Oh. And suddenly, to do it legally, it made it a lot tougher. Poor old Volstead, the guy who'd written that original act, he was like, I'm not just the bloke who wrote the Volstead Act, you know. <laughs> Mr. Volstead said he wishes people would learn that prohibition and all its developments are all in the past for Andrew Volstead, private citizen. Volstead himself added, anything I might say could do nobody any good. All it would do just being ridicule upon me. He'd rather be known, he said, as the co-author of the Kappa Volstead Act, which exempted certain farmers from antitrust regulation so they could organise voluntary cooperatives. Yeah, it's not going to happen, Andrew, mate. It's, no, it's, mate. It's a, Your name's on it now, mate. Banned booze yeah. or organised an amendment about farm cooperatives. <laughs> America was drinking again, but organised crime was established and did not evaporate overnight. Well, of course, they diverted to other things, didn't they, such as drugs. Yeah. Well, and uh, yeah. and it, it seems mad, doesn't it, that the governments haven't learnt from this whole episode, yeah. you know, the refusal to legalise and uh, yeah. regulate drugs. Well, gradually, it's happening gradually, isn't it? You get some of the states mm. are making cannabis legal. But it is the same sort of arguments. Yeah. Obviously, in Canada now, cannabis is legal. All oh, right. And um, when I was last in Newfoundland, um, they have a chain of stores called Tweed, okay. which um, are cannabis stores. Okay. And I'm not kidding, John. It it looks like the Apple store. That's it's what, yeah. so... It is so Everyone in Poland, shiny. And, yeah. Yeah. And they, and they come up to you. You walk in. It's so mad. They, and a guy comes up to you with a clipboard. Oh, no, it's an iPad. <laughs> How old am I? And he like goes, okay, so what sort of high are you after? You know, <laughs> oh you after something mellow or something. And we were like, oh. And, um, and then they, imagine an Apple store, you know, yeah, where they yeah. have the, the sort of desks with all the iPads on. Yeah. Well, it's like that, but they have these little perspex boxes what, like with the, grass the budding. In and the bud, okay. The grass in it. And then you, you just pull out the drawer and you can smell it and see if that's what you go, oh, oh, that one smells. I like the bouquet of that one. Wow. And it was so slick and shiny and chrome. It feels and like, like it an should Apple be store. some hippie sitting on a beanbag rolling a joint. Right, you imagine it's going to be like a, yeah. a sort of it was yeah, conspiracy a tie-dye. Man. It was the FBI yeah. killed Kennedy, man. They're all in it, it. Yeah, you think it's going to be like one of those sort of uh, crystal shops. Yeah, you know? yeah. But it's not. It's this really slick operation. It was it was sort of fun. I yeah. think that would put me off, if I'm honest. I think, I think I'd rather go into the... <laughs> 
that sort of hippie crystal <laughs> shop with a dream catcher made of feathers. <laughs> so it permanently changed America in terms of the crime. It allowed women to go into bars for the first time, made that acceptable. In the war, which was only like eight years afterwards, brewery mm. workers were designated key workers and exempted military service. So that's what a huge wow. change that was made in, in those few years. Today, still a lot of dry counties in America, huge parts of Texas, Michigan, Pennsylvania. Mm. Jack Daniels, the, the, the distillery, is in a dry county. So you can have a tour wow. of the distillery, but you can't buy it. You a can't have a taste. You can't buy, have a taste or buy it. You have to oh, drive wow. Yeah. They can only export. That's yeah, mad, isn't it? Yeah, they have to leave the county. But the other thing we just touched on slightly, it shows that the Constitution of the United States is a living document and can be changed. So to all the National mm-hmm. Rifle Association nuts going, no, right to bear arms is in the Constitution. The solution is take it out of yes. the Constitution, guys, just so people don't keep shooting each other. You can change it, you know. It's there to it's be changed. It's a living document. Like it was in 1933. Yeah. So I think we've come down on one side of the prohibition I, th- I think it's fairly I, obvious where we stand. I think we're saying we're against it. Alcohol, <laughs> you know, we're always making jokes about it. It's a social problem and people do struggle with alcohol and we don't make yeah. light of that. But No, but prohibition isn't the way... Prohibition isn't the way... To, to deal with that, yeah. I think. Yes, drink, drink responsibly, say. say John and Angela. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> do as we say, not as we do. Yes, I raise a glass to those women of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. I say, cheers, ladies. We, we salute your motives, if not your actions. Absolutely. To protect the, the poor people of urban America. But it was never going to work. I think that's everything, isn't it, Angela? I think that's it. I, th- I think we've covered think- prohibition. Sorry, I zoned out there for a minute because I was just dreaming about beer. <laughs> <laughs> In my research for this, I came across a song Ooh. from the time called I Never Knew I Had a Wonderful Wife Until the Town Went Dry. Oh, so let's play, on, play out on that one. Sing along, everyone. Let's sing along. Uh, uh, thank you for listening everyone do drop us a tweet at we are history pod at we are history pod John oh not we are history we are history pod give us five stars you bastards give us five stars we'll get you in the pub and... car park <laughs> and we'll see you next see time you next week. cheers Thanks, guys. we've been but now feeling gay I heard him tell a friend of his while on the street today, say, I never knew I had a wonderful wife until the town went dry. I used to make excuses and go out to the club, and when I think of what I've missed, I know I've been a dub. To keep her shape, I thought my wife used all those girlish tricks. Since I played home, I found out she's a perfect 36. I never knew I had a wonderful wife until the time.